Welcome to this week's Eccentric Minute, brought to you by Eccentric. This week's Eccentric Minute is the K-Box One-Arm Row. This is a great exercise to tick quite a few boxes when it comes to your training with the Eccentric K-Box. For this, set the strap and give the wheel a spin. I really like using that toe plate as a support for the back leg to allow me to really get my hips back and hold my position. From there, you're going to try to fight that huge eccentric load when it's pulling you down to not let your shoulders fall too far and give a really big hard pull driving your shoulders back and your elbow back behind you. Keys to this are just to make sure that you're braced the whole time through and you're ready because when that thing starts pulling you back down it's really going to try to break your posture. Again this is a huge bang for your buck exercise and one that I'm sure that you and your athletes are going to love so give the one-arm row on the K-Box a try. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. I really hope you enjoyed this week's Eccentric Minute. Make sure you check them out at eccentric.com to find out everything you need about the K-Box and the K-Pulley. Being a strength and conditioning professional requires constant pursuit of better knowledge, better methods, and better means. But what if there was a place where strength and conditioning coaches could learn from some of the most innovative practitioners in the world, such as Jeff Moyer, Lachlan Wilmot, William Wayland, James the Thinker Smith, and Kirwenham Flat. Well, you can find multiple lectures from each of these top-level coaches and a few lectures and examples from yours truly as well, all in the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network is going to bring you well over a hundred different lectures from some of the top practitioners in the world to be your one-stop shop for your continuing education and professional development. So hop on over to strengthcoachnetwork.com slash today and get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. That's strengthcoachnetwork.com slash C-V-A-S-P-S to get your 48-hour trial for only a dollar. I look forward to seeing you in the Strength Coach Network. Allie, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thanks for having me, Jay. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm fired up for this. This is uh, like a bunch of these have been. It has been a crazy time scheduling and recording and getting things down in this COVID world. But for the three quarters of a human being who doesn't know where you're at and how you got out to the left coast, uh, let them know who Allie is and what she's up to. Well, that's the million dollar question, Jay. Um, let's see where to start. I'm a, I'm a circular story, if you will. So follow me when I go on this little rant. I was uh, born and raised in Palo Alto, California, Northern California. I, you know, did the whole play every sport growing up kind of thing. Narrowed it down to one, which was soccer, and then was, you know, fortunate enough to be recruited and play at Duke, where I was a goalkeeper. I made my way after that to Kansas where I was a graduate assistant for two years under Coach Hootie and then I was hired full-time to do women's basketball and soccer and swimming and golf and you know how it is you have about 17 sports and then from there was even more fortunate to get an opportunity at Stanford with women's basketball and women's golf so I am I road tripped it across the country and road tripped it back I am now back in Palo Alto California as a 27 year old and I lived with my parents last year, moved out since then, so life is good. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the short, short and long of it. Yeah, and making that trip over and back, there, there's been a lot of 
interesting spots and, and coaches to work with and learn from. And then being in a spot too, where you were at like an exceptional academic institution as a student athlete, then leading into working at an exceptional scholastic institution with student athletes. Uh, let's talk about your time at Duke a little bit. Talk about your time as a soccer player and, and how that got you moving in this direction. Well, I think my story is different than a lot of people, but it's also very similar to a lot of people in our profession, which is we were athletes. We maybe weren't the best athlete. And so we sought other ways to improve upon our athletic talents. And for me, the weight room was actually a place where I could see obviously directly correlated work to results where I was not seeing that on the soccer field because as a goalkeeper there's one of you and if you are in a position where there's multiple people ahead of you in terms of playing time and or you know in my case there was like an all-american in front of me I was not seeing a direct correlation between my effort at the practice on the practice field correlating to playing time. And that was, you know, frustrating. And there was always the conversation of, well, you need more experience. Well, how do I get more experience if you're not putting me in the games, right? So as somebody who likes control, which I know a lot of us strength coaches do, I sought that in a place like the weight room and then fell in love with training. And it became just a learning environment for me, which I also have found is where I do my best work and then sought to find a way to continue that post-graduation. I dig that because I think that, you know, the two things come of that. One, obviously the reason that Allie and I get along well is she was a goalkeeper and I was a center back. So, you know, people that get stuck in bad situations all the time that end up being coaches probably would have yelled at each other on the field because it was someone else's mistake that led to whatever happened. But the fact that it comes down to determining the measurables of what you can see improve, whereas sometimes doing what the game demands, it hamstrings you and you don't, you don't get there. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I liked being a goalkeeper for a lot of reasons. I liked being a leader on the field. I liked the responsibility of directing everybody in front of me. But like you said, it was kind of a thankless duty, a thankless role, which, you know, sometimes we're, we're in. And I think that definitely prepared me for the position I'm in now in terms of being a strength coach, because it's a lot about the preparation. It's a lot about organizing and coordinating people, not always a thanked position, not saying that we should be, but you know, I think there's a lot of similarities and crossovers between the two. Yeah, and then taking those types of lessons and those types of thoughts, when you talk about, you know, thankless, really, I, I, I think that people would probably scoff at that, but I don't think people still give Andrea enough credit for what she's done for everything and everyone and, and the impact that she has on people. Like, you know, I've, I've come out and said flat out that if it wasn't for Tim Belts and Andrea Hootie, I never would have even thought about working in college basketball. Um, so let's talk about your time in, in Lawrence and, and what, what are some things that, you know, when you, you left Duke as a, as a keeper and someone who had found 
their sort of passion place in the weight room. What, what then came with you and then what then was molded to then flip to carry away from, from KU? Well, it's interesting. I never, I never ever thought I was going to be a coach. That was literally never one thing once in my, you know, five year, 10 year, 15 year plan that fell in my lap. Like, you know, some things tend to tend to do. And, um, I was actually working for Sparta, the force split company. You know, I was like a summer intern for them. They were in my same, they, their headquarters is in my hometown. So I was working for them one summer, winter break of my senior year in college. I went back home and met with one of the guys that had led my internship and said, Hey, can I come work for you guys after college? And they're like, well, no, we don't really have a position, you know, that would probably suit you or, you know, be, we're not really hiring basically. <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. He's like, well, have you heard of coach Hootie at Kansas? And I was like, no question mark. And he was like, oh, well, you need to go home, do some homework. I know they're hiring a graduate assistant. Fast forward, I find myself in Lawrence, really still not thinking I was going to be a coach. I, I really wanted to be more on the research, the sports science side of things. But here I was, and I showed up for my interview. This is an infamous story at this point. And I was told to be there at 6 a.m. for the interview. And I stayed until 6 p.m. I was there for a 12-hour interview. And in that time, I never formally interviewed with Coach Hootie. She and I worked out. That's how she interviewed me. And I distinctly remember she asked me, hey, we're going to do some dumbbell rows. What weight do you want to, what, what weight do you want to use? And I was like, you know, tough guy, <laughs> like I'm better impress. So I remember being like, like eighties. And she's like, oh, okay. Eighties. Sure. Let's see it. So I walk over to the dumbbell rack and I'm like, okay. You know, like bracing myself, do like two reps. And then I was like, oh, wow, I picked the wrong weight. She's like cracking up in the background, probably. And this is how it went. And that's how my relationship with Hootie was the entire time we were there. It was her challenging me, her pushing me, her empowering me to make decisions, and then me failing a lot of the time, but learning along the way. And, you know, I was reflecting recently on like what I took from her as a mentor besides everything. And it was, it's really like how to have fun and not take yourself too seriously. And I think that's one thing she doesn't get enough credit for is she, you know, she's seen as kind of this, she's put up on a pedestal in our industry a lot. She's such a real person and she's, she's a comedian and she's fun and she's engaging to be around. And I think that's why she draws people to her. So if, if nothing else, cause everybody always talks about her as a leader and she is a great leader. Don't get me wrong, but she doesn't get enough credit as being a human. I dig it. I think that, uh, I think I can, I can go with what you're saying there. You know, there's been plenty of situations where it's being around outside of the weight room. Hootie is, is different. Um, but I would almost counter and say, I think, people overlook her power as a leader overall in how she's in every place she's been at, she's been at the top of the top 
and she's run the room. In a room full of alphas, she was the alpha. And I think that there's a lot of people who make fake excuses or reasons behind that. And, you know, when you think about it, Ali, part of that could be the fact that it, it's just because it's Hootie being Hootie. I would, I would completely agree with you. I think what's hard about that is, like you said, she's the alpha among alphas. And she has purposely scaffolded this incredible coaching tree. And she has fingers and branches all over the country at this point. And as a part of that coaching tree, you kind of look around and you're like, wow, I'm in truly the presence of some phenomenal leaders, some phenomenal people. And then you remember where you came from under Coach Hootie and you know how incredible she is as a leader. And you, you have this urge to carry forth and sow her seed, if you will, and do things the way that Coach Hootie would do. And I will actually tell you, Jay, I'll be extremely vulnerable here. I really struggled when I had to go out on my own because I didn't know who I was. I know who I was under Coach Hootie because I had her umbrella of protection while I was at Kansas. And it was sort of like her reputation preceded all of us on her staff. And we wanted to do things like her because as a female in this profession, I think a lot of times I like people would say to me, hey, like you're gonna be the next Coach Hootie or hey, when are you gonna become a director like Coach Hootie? And I, I really struggled to extract who I was from who that expectation was. And when I got to Stanford, it was like this moment of, oh crap, who, who am I? How is that different? Because we are very different. And how do I communicate that? Because I think a lot of people see, oh, they're just going to be like another Coach Hootie. I think that that is one of the things that holds back female strength and conditioning coaches, is that people have that instant thought process of, well, because you're with Hootie, you got to do this, or you're with Tina, so you got to do that, or you're with Heather Mason, so you got to be like this person, you know, like the people that were the trailblazers. But a conversation with Molly this summer, we sat down and we talked about like how there, there have been these people that have been put on a pedestal in a way, and, and, and deservedly so, so that when other people get the opportunity to be in speaking positions, they feel as though if I don't live up, or if I don't do this, that you're letting down all of the female coaches out there. I don't know, maybe it's the CSCCA, like they have like the women's breakfast and where they do that. And then, or they have like these, or during COVID, there was like a couple of presentations that was like just female panels or just, you know, coaches of color panels. And it's like, if we're trying to be inclusive and bring people together, why are you sticking these people in the room in the morning and saying, go have fun when everybody else got hammered last night? Like, why are we not sitting here and just being like, yo, Benetti's a gun, you know? Yo, like, Kirshner's a stud. Like, listen, like, she knows what she's talking about. Why, I don't, and that's the thing that, like, it was all based off a tweet that I subtweeted, and she got mad, rightfully so, and, like, led to a, me just being like, Molly, you're, like, one of the best leaders I know. Like, why are we not talking about solutions? And... Like, that's the thing that, like, 
I don't think people understand that enough is that there's that aspect of it that does hold female coaches back and that kind of um, like, like the breaking of that is now limiting them moving forward because people either aren't giving them the opportunities that they deserve or when they get the opportunities, they're so nervous about it that it's like, whatever. I don't understand because I will never understand, but I don't understand why people wouldn't want to bring the best people together to learn from, to talk about things. Cause like, like who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, things need to be taken. There's, there needs to be some action here. And Molly and I, this is literally what Molly and I bonded over was like this shared experience of her with Tina and me with Hootie and people being like, Oh, you're going to be Tina. Oh, you're going to do it like Hootie. And Oh, by the way, like what we had been told or what was told to the head coach that hired us. Like for me, it was Tara at Stanford for her. It was, uh, Dawn, like that we were going to come in as a gunner and we were going to come in as a Tina or a Hootie and neither one of us has that style. Right, wrong or indifferent, that's not how we coach. And that's why it's brilliant, you know, like that we can take things from Tina and Hootie, but be our own person. And yet when people are like, wait, I, I thought I hired, you know, like we, we kind of battle this like the perception of what a female strength coach should be in this profession, I think is still evolving. And the way that Hootie and Tina were raised and grew up and had to fight for things is different than the environment that we find ourselves in now. Being a female is not as weird. And so you don't have to be this one size fits all. You don't have to be in the good boys, good old boys club to do it. You know, like you can do it the way you want to do it. And um, it took me a while to realize that. Good. I'm glad you realized it. Yeah, and I, I don't think like it's as much on me as it's on anyone else, right? Like I had to, I think everybody struggles yeah. with figuring out where they separate from their mentor and what do I want to take from my mentor? What do I want to leave? Who am I going to be? I think that is a certain, you know, launching point for every young coach in this profession. For me, it just took a little bit longer and a little bit more self-reflection because I think the outside um, influence and feedback I was hearing, you know, was helpful and hurtful, right? Like I was like mm -hmm. hearing like, oh yes, like Hootie's the best. You got to learn on her. You're going to grow from her. Like, and I was getting opportunities because of her, right? So that's all positive. But then the negative is that it builds up this expectation that you're having to live up to, which is impossible to live up to because I'm not Hootie. I don't want to be Hootie. I want to take the best parts of Hootie that work for me and my philosophy. And I want to use those, but not all of the things that Hootie make Hootie good, make me good. So then let's talk about Stanford. Yeah. Let's talk about getting there. Let's talk about building that. Let's talk about, you know, because I think that what's important here, Allie, is like young coaches understanding that like, you got to be you. So like, you're going to trip over your own two feet, especially if you're wearing somebody else's shoes, you know? 
Absolutely. And that's the biggest lesson that I've learned, which is what made Hootie who she is. If I had to bottle that up, it's she's a pioneer. She's a rule breaker when necessary. She's a done is better than perfect. She's a lead with your heart and do what's best for you. All of which are core tenets that I want to take forth. And I feel like if I honor those parts of her, I will do it in my own way because being a pioneer looks different to me than it does to her, but I can still take her teaching me how to be a pioneer and apply it now in my own way. So when I got to Stanford, there was that moment, like I said, it was like, oh shoot, like who am I going to be? Who am I as a coach? I'm not the huge presence, take up the room with my voice and command this ultimate respect and throw myself into ridiculous exercises like the infamous hootie lore goes. And we could, you know, have a whole episode on that. But I'm the pull the athlete aside, have conversations, get to know them at this intimate level. I'm definitely more of a, I would say, let's let the session kind of unravel, promote autonomy, like we've talked about in previous conversations, really design the environment for purposeful learning, then maybe force learning on people, which is sometimes Hootie style. I don't think she would mind me sharing that. But you know, it was, it was, it's definitely been a self-exploration. Last year was really hard. Last year was me trying to be Hootie at Stanford. This year is Allie trying to be Allie at Stanford. And with that has come so much more happiness and freedom and growth. And I'm like finally coming into my own. And I think Molly had the same experience and she's shared that with me many times. And it's the most liberating feeling, which is I'm doing this for me. I've got all this background knowledge from my previous experiences and mentors. And now I'm, it's like having read a textbook and now applying it, you know, like I've got the Hootie textbook on my bookshelf. It's a big one. There's like seven volumes, you know, and then now I'm pulling from that every once in a while when I need it, instead of reading the cookbook and then looking up every once in a while to make sure that the oven's still on. It's a great analogy. And I think too, that what, what I, I definitely want to run down the rabbit hole next is the autonomy speak. Uh, but this is something that just popped in my head. Do you think maybe this autonomy thing has something to do with the fact of how we were trained as soccer players? How most of playing that game is we're going to throw you in on a 5v2 or we're going to put you in some sort of constraints-led approach game and you're going to figure out how to do this or you're going to sink? Like I, This is just off the top of my head, like just thinking this, like going back to the 90s when I was in college and you were in middle school. Um, you know, thinking about it back then, like, I wonder how much that impacts it. I would say that definitely has an impact, but the bigger impact in terms of autonomy and wanting to use that and creativity and chaos and exploration comes from a lack of that in my life. I, like I said, I'm a little bit of a control freak and I always have been. I was a first child and with that birth order stereotype, I was a rule follower I always got good grades. I always did the right thing. If I went out and partied, I told my parents about it. 
I got into a great school, you know, by, by all standards, I always was in, it was always important to me to check the box and not break the rules. And then when I started breaking rules is when I started learning and I started having genuine experience. And so when I applied that to strength and conditioning, I was like, look, I'm trying to do my old thing of create rules and control everything in the weight room and no learning is occurring. And then when I finally was like, okay, what would it mean to break the rules in the weight room? And for me, that was creating autonomy. And that was creating this chaotic, semi-fluid environment, which was extremely uncomfortable for me as a control freak. And it was like, I was like, oh God, the session is so ugly and it's not going the way that I want it to go. But they're learning and they're enjoying it and they're breaking the rules and they're getting something from it the much in the same way that I've always learned and grown every time I've broken the rules. So that was the, the breakthrough moment, the aha, the light bulb of, I need to use autonomy in my programming. That's what's going to be successful for me. I think that's rad because I think that when you sit there and it's a person who's so entrenched in control and the rules that knowing them is what really might've been what allowed you to break them. Well, like Jay, like look at our athletes, how structured and programmed and controlled are their days, especially in COVID with all of this protocol, you got to be up at seven for breakfast, taped at eight, you got testing at eight 30 practice or lift at nine it buh, 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 down the list, right? There is not a single moment for choice in their day. And don't even get me started on living in a hotel, right? Where you have to eat your meal in your room by yourself. But I then saw my place of like where I could sneak in and provide some value was, let me give them choice. Like that's my one job in this crazy time. If I can give them even a little bit of freedom, I've won because they can come into the weight room, they can play, they can smile, they can have an opportunity to choose something that's good for them and their bodies. And if that's the only success that they get in that day, we're good. Because I know that they go to practice right after my lift and they're running the same plays. Like we've got a playbook, right? And it's seven chapters long and it's detailed and we got a lot of stuff that we run. And again, it goes back to control. And then after that, they've got homework and blah, 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 again. So Autonomy is choice and it's play and it's one part of the larger day. But, you know, that's really, I don't know. I think it, especially in COVID, that's really been a breakthrough moment for me. And now I think that before we go too far forward after that, because I do want to talk about some other things you've done with, with the COVID situation, but I think that this one thing that people, I think it's like a fabricated issue that people have with autonomy is they think that, you know, the, the women's basketball team at Stanford walks in and they're like, I'm going to bench press, I'm going to curl, I'm going to do whatever I want. But in reality, there's been some structure to the education process that's allowed this to be occurring. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that I was like, I, I think that actually was what was preventing me from implementing this before. I was like, you know, people talk about autonomy, but that just seems like chaos and that seems like not productive at all and there's got to be some sort of plan right like even undulating 
periodization, nonlinear periodization has some sort of plan at the end of the day. So I was like, how, how do you even do this? So after talking to some people, some really, really much smarter people than I am, I kind of came to understand how this could fit into my schema, which is um, heavily education focused in the beginning of introducing variations on upon variations. So let's teach them seven different variations of a split squat. Let's teach them four different variations of a hip hinge. And you know, what's really great about that is that that's a great thing to do during GPP because who cares at that point, right? Like let's just non-specific, get them accustomed to a lot of different movements. We're training the overall patterns that we need later on, but we're getting them familiar with a ton of different options. Then as we get closer and closer to season, I'm still giving them buckets, right? Like we still have, Hey, today I want you to hit a unilateral squat and a bilateral hinge and an upper pull and an upper push. Now within that, you know, I might even for the first couple of weeks, give them a, like a word bank of the seven variations that we used. Okay. Hey, pick your favorite, do four sets of five each. And that's it. And within that, I know they're still getting a single leg squat. They're still getting a hip hinge. They're still getting a push. They're still getting a pull. All the bases are covered. And they're picking the exercise, so they're absolutely going to buy into and, and load it up heavier uh, or have more intent with the exercise, whatever the, the goal is. And then from there, it's, yeah, we're still keeping track. Like, I'll be like, hey, okay, what, what load did you hit and what type of squat did you do? And we're keeping track of that. And then I pull that paper out next time and be like, hey, this is what you did last time. Let's try to improve on that. But I think that's, you know, it's probably not complete autonomy. I don't think anybody would be like, oh, wow, that is truly differential learning where every repetition is different. And that's never been the goal, but it's just a little, little dose of choice every once in a while. And the buy-in is through the roof, my friend. Well, this is the thing, right? At the end of the day, if you've taught them an array of different versions of the same exercise, and they say exercise C feels better than exercises A and B. Wouldn't that be what you should program for them anyway? Like, hey, when I do this real rear foot elevated split squat, I don't know why, but my middle back like really bothers me. Well, are you going to keep beating them with a tack hammer with a rear foot elevated split squat instead of letting them put their foot on the ground? Like, isn't that what you would do? Isn't that just called coaching? Like, yeah. It absolutely is. And I know for myself, if somebody said, hey, Allie, front squat, back squat, trap bar, uh, pit shark, pick your favorite, load it up heavy. I want five sets of five. If I was allowed to pick my favorite one, you can bet your bottom dollar, I would be loading that a whole hell of a lot heavier than one that does not feel good. And at the end of the day, are the movements that different that we're worried about five to 10 kilos here or there or a slightly different movement pattern. I mean, by and large, they're all anterior chain dominant. Yeah, they, they differ a little bit, it's a sliding scale, but the overall stimulus to me is not different enough to warrant a lack of buy-in or a lack of load that they're not gonna put on because it doesn't feel great. And if it keeps them coming back, it's worth it even more. There it is. Bingo. I've said from day one that 
if at the end of four years or the end of my time with them, you can say, I enjoy the weight room. I have some idea of what to do when I go forth and am a functioning human in society. I've won. That is the goal for me. Um, because I've seen it the other way around where an athlete at the end of the four years says, Hey coach Ali, can you write me workouts for the rest of my life? Because I don't know what to do. And like, that is just like the most like one sad, but also frustrating experience. It's like, did I teach you nothing? I thought this was supposed to be a learning environment. That's, that speaks volumes about what I did or didn't do. Right. That's so crushing when you hear that. It's just like, ugh, really? All that time and, and look like and and i've had this conversation too autonomy is not for everybody some athletes really do just want to be told what to do it's actually more cognitively exhausting to have to pick than it is for you coach just tell me what to do and there are times where i will say that i'll be like hey there's this playground workout where you get to choose all your different variations of everything or if you're feeling like you just need hard work, you just need to sweat, let me know. And I can come up with something for you because there are both types of athletes and that's fine. I don't want to say that autonomy is the only way to go either. I think it's definitely more where I'm trending, but I'm not opposed to helping an athlete who's already overwhelmed in a lot of other aspects, pick exercises, because at the end of the day, we are more knowledgeable than they are at this, or we should be. <laughs> Yeah, you'd hope. And then I think, though, that the other part, too, is like there's people that different days are going to be in different camps with that also, right? Is It's like there's going to be days where people are going to be like, no, I'm going to pick, pick. And there's going to be days where people are just like, you know, just just tell me what to do. Like, I don't, Dude, I don't, Jay, I don't get that. I'm like that. I'm like, man, today I really wish somebody else would just program for me. I'm just tired of these prison workouts from quarantine, you know, like can somebody else just write me a body weight program that I can do with a single dumbbell? But um, yeah, so if I'm feeling it, I can only imagine what they're feeling. Yeah, but speaking of this time where we've been doing these workouts at home or in our backyard, I mean, like you can go outside, it's cold here. Even for an upstate New Yorker, it's cold here right now. But, you know, people talked a lot about the necessities of having something come out of COVID, right? Like the necessities of having some sort of positive come out of this time, you know, and, and I've talked a little bit about it as well myself, but you guys have something cooking that I think needs to get some attention and we need to talk about here because you did it. I did. I did, you know, in COVID, right. There were three different camps. There were the people that baked bread, the people that started a podcast and the people that, Oh, I don't know. What would be another camp? Maybe the the people that went absolutely mentally insane? Probably yeah, or the people that just like found a side hustle and an investment scheme or whatever, maybe. Exactly. So but those are tied together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely dabbled in all three, but I for sure did the first two. And I actually did start a podcast. A podcast that is a little bit counterculture in the sense that I didn't want to do a strength and conditioning podcast because I know in my own life, when I'm searching for an answer, I tend to talk to the same people and I tend to run in the same circles. And I have the accounts on Twitter that I like to follow or not follow. And I 
tend to ask the same questions. And when that happens, I never get anything new and I never work my way out of that problem. So where do I and when do I tend to solve those problems? I came to realize that the answer to that is when I was talking to my parents who were in different professions, they're both entrepreneurs. When I was talking about a subject that I knew very little about, when I was reading books about things that I had literally no clue about before I picked them up. And it led this, led me down this rabbit hole of lateral thinking and how other people in history have taken lessons and philosophies and principles from other professions and other realms, arts and science and cooking, and injected them back into their own profession and found themselves broken free of, you know, the, not the chains, but, you know, where they were limited in their thinking before. And that led me to some really interesting conversations with uh, Travis Knight, who's the strength coach at Gonzaga for men's basketball. And we just had, started having these really interesting conversations about anything and everything, like the Israeli military and the idea of dissenting opinions and devil's advocates and how important it is to think entrepreneur, on, like an entrepreneur in the sense of having um, a designer's mindset and what that means in terms of a lean startup model. And, you know, all these things probably sound like kind of foreign concepts and maybe like they wouldn't have application in strength and conditioning, but they did that and more. I was suddenly finding myself with so much more creativity and enjoyment in my own profession just because I had reached out and stolen ideas from another one. Yeah, and I think that what's cool about that is a few things. One, I was definitely one of those people that said, you have to be able to do all those things. I, I didn't bake bread though. Um, but two, like, if you're unwilling to look at different avenues to solve the same problem, everything that you're going to look at is going to be a nail and everything you're going to swing at it is going to be a hammer. Yeah. And, and so often in times or so often in life, we look at things as binary, black or white. In reality, there's not a single thing as black or white. And if you have a black or white mentality, I really would love to hear how your COVID has gone because there's nothing that we can count on in COVID. So applying that same philosophy to everything we do, if we can think of it as a sliding scale where there's a lot of gray, a lot of space in the, in the middle to figure stuff out, it's a lot more freeing. And it just, it's, a, it's like a breath of fresh air when you have conversations with intelligent people from other professions and you learn that they're dealing with a lot of the same struggles that we are and yet they've figured out new and unusual solutions that would help us and yet you know i think it, this is not just strength and conditioning but a lot of professions have echo chambers and they have um like tires spinning in mud they're they're not going anywhere there's no traction and what we hope to do with our podcast, which is called Ride the Gray, I probably should have mentioned that at the beginning, Ride the Gray with an E, is just look outside of our profession and then tie it back into what a coach could use or what a coach could do with this information. And it's just to stimulate interesting conversations. And to be honest with you, sometimes we just like to hear our own voices, apparently. <laughs> no, but I think too, though, when you look at that, like that's, that is important because we have to understand that there are more answers to what our 
problems are that we have, and especially as such a, a younger vocation, like, you know, you talk about like Mossad and the Israeli military, like there's been people in the military for a very, very long time, like not since like 1984, right? When strength and conditioning really was like picking up, like we need to be able to look at these other aspects and, you know, entrepreneurship or business or marketing or whatever it may be and, and listen and, and take an understanding of they've been doing things a lot longer than us. Maybe they've made the mistakes that we're making now. And if they're still having the same problems, maybe we can learn from that and, and do things a little better. Well, and I love what you just said. And, and one, you know, just to give a clear example of what I'm talking about, because it's easy to talk in hypotheticals on podcasts, but, you know, a book I'm reading right now, and it's, it plays into the conversation we're having is called Improv Wisdom. And it's about the art and science of improv theater. And, you know, I think a lot of us think of improv as comedy, think of whose lines in any way, which are awesome examples of improv, don't get me wrong, but improv is a way that we can, it's a, it's a method of communicating and a method of practicing adaptability that we could all use right now as coaches, like today, and it would make us all 100% better. And like, you know, in the book, the, the author, she's actually a Stanford professor, so hopefully I can meet her at some point, but she talks about a couple of rules of improv, for example, um, how to use yes and. So instead of saying yes, but, you know, I think we often retort with but, and anything that you've said prior to but is suddenly irrelevant, right? Because you're now basically saying, well, my idea is actually better than yours or what you just said really doesn't factor in. So if you say yes, and even if you don't agree with somebody, you're now contributing to the conversation. You're providing an answer, a solution, another way of looking at it. And, you know, it's like another one of the improv principles is that information is a gift. So anytime you don't provide detail or context, you're effectively disrespecting the person you're communicating with because you're not giving them anything to launch off of or there's no richness to the conversation. And we all know that when you're asked a bad question, it's hard to give a good answer. So instead, give a better question, give more detail when you're conversating with somebody, because then it gives them 17 different paths to play off of. If I say like, hey Jay, how was your dinner last night? And you're like, that oh, was good, I had meat and potatoes. That's a, it's harder for me to respond to that than if you had said, you know, Allie, it was great, I had, this medium rare steak from my favorite steakhouse down the street. Um, the guy's name is Matt, you know, he's an old friend of mine and the potatoes were these Idaho potatoes. Like, I'm not saying you have to go in that extent, but now I can be like, oh my God, I, I, you like medium rare steak? Well, man, that thing's almost mooing. It's, you know, like, I like mine well done, right? There's so much more I can play off of. Um, and I don't know, it, it, I'm now going on a tangent, but improv is a, a concept that I never thought I would have studied and it would have made me a better coach. And yet that's just an idea of taking aspects from other professions and injecting them into your own. No, I think that's a brilliant example. As a, a guy who grew up with one of my best friends, like they had a, an improv set that they did all the way through high school. Like seeing that I could, 
it's almost one of those things where you're like, well, yeah, why hasn't anybody thought of that? Like having someone give you random scenarios that you have to work your way through with no preparation as to that. That's coaching. That's life. That's literally what we're going through. That's 15 years of college basketball in a sense. Like, hey, I didn't know how this conversation with you was going to go. I never know what my day is going to entail. So you need improv. You need to be adaptable. And if you can't apply that, I don't know what you're doing. Too, no doubt. Like, I, I love the conversations people have. They're like, so what's your schedule like? And I'm like, for today? And they're like, for the rest of the week. And I'm like. I love when people give you an itinerary and you're like, okay, thank you. And then you <laughs> promptly <laughs> rip it down the middle and throw it out the window because the itinerary never goes to plan. (laughs) That's something I learned (laughs) working with a baseball team. There is no such thing as an itinerary. Take that thing, get on the bus at whatever time and then throw that thing away. So funny. I know I give him so much credit and we've talked about him, but my sports med guy and I like, that's our ongoing joke. Cause it'll be like, when the time hits, it'll be like at this, it'll be like, come on. (laughs) That's just, you know what? You got to roll with the punches and do what you got to do sometimes. Absolutely. But no, Allie, I'm, uh, I'm really grateful for your time. I'm glad we could catch up. And let's make sure once again, the book was what, because I think that this is something people would probably want to check out. And again, where can they see more about the podcast before we get going? Yeah, so the podcast you can find on any of your podcast players, it's called Ride the Gray, one word gray with an e and that is on twitter and instagram and all that the book is called improv wisdom and it's by patricia madsen and it's called yeah the improv wisdom don't prepare just show up i dig it i dig it well Allie, as always great to chop it up great to catch up great to see you glad you're great and we'll be in touch real soon Thanks so much for having me, Jay. This was a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Cheers.